Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Richard Lee. This week we begin at the end, as in Karl Ove Knausgaard's final book of his six-volume epic, My Struggle in which the author has been charting his own life in minute detail. He joined Claire Armitstead at the Islington Assembly Hall in London to discuss this extraordinary literary project at a Guardian Live event. Having established that the vast majority of the audience were completists and had read at least five of the six novels, Claire began by asking about spoilers. Doesn't the very first book begin with the biggest one of all? I think it's <laughs> it's not a matter of, of what happens because it's a completely ordinary life and it's completely ordinary things that happens. It's all about how how it happens. I think the structure in the book is it starts with the death of the father and that's the key and that's kind of what it is about and then it starts to go into the past and, and up again and kind of enters that uh, death again, with the feeling the first time you read it, okay, it's, it's someone is dead, and, and the, la- the second time you would know everything, and, and the meaning is that then everything should be seen differently somehow, and I think that's the way our life works. I mean, I look very differently upon my father now than I did when I was 20 or 30. You, you say it's a very ordinary life. Yeah. But in some, in, in key respect, it's not an ordinary life that you had. I mean, not everybody's father dies of alcoholism under such circumstances as your father died, no, for example. No, but there are quite many. I mean, I've met many people who, who, who come up to me and say, you know, I had a father that was like you. I had a father that was like you're in, in childhood or that he was drinking or I had, you know, someone died. And that's, that's a lot of those things that's, that's just around us and that we don't talk about that much outside of you know the family so I think that's part of the reason of, of, of what happened with this book is exactly that it is common it is happening but we don't talk so much about it so it's like it is invisible somehow mm-hmm. so now we come to the end um, which you actually say at the end of this at the end of the end that this is the end of you being a writer yeah which is patently untrue yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness, we've already had a whole, a whole season series <laughs> since before this, yeah. the end has arrived, which was subsequent to the end. Yeah, when my editor read that bit, he said, you know, uh, you can always change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was the sentence I had 
in mind from the very beginning when I realized this is going to be a self-biographical pro project about my life. That was the ending and I knew that and it was like a, an exit I was writing myself towards and it had to be true when I wrote that sentence, you know, and, and in book six at the end, it is true. I was so happy I was leaving this, <laughs> this text and this, this writing. Um, and the thing was, this is a book about life and literature in many ways and in many different ways. And literature has always been a very important part of my life. It's been the place where I have escaped and now and hidden. But it's also been the way where I have seen the world through, you know, as a place outside where I've understood the world. And in the end, I wanted to, you know, turn away from literature and just go into life and disappear kind of without a trace was the, was the hope I had. This was finished. I mean, the, the, the very last sentence is dated 2000, August 2011. Yeah. And this was published in October 2011. This is a long time ago now for you. Yeah. How does it feel to revisit it seven years on? It's, um, it's strange because I think I know what it is, you know, and haven't read it since I wrote it. Uh, and I think I know what it is. And then I was doing an event in Edinburgh last weekend, and on the train there I started to read, read uh, bits of it, and, and there was something there, I, I didn't remember having written it, but I didn't even recognize the thinking, the thoughts. It was like it was written by a stranger. And I, I, I think that's, that's true to our lives, not only in that book, but I think, I think we do change, and I do think, but since it us, and since it is, we have the same identity, it's like we, we just lose sight of that and we don't know it, you know, it, it's very interesting, I think. It's like, um, I've been talking a lot with Henry Marsh, the, the neurosurgeon, the yeah, yeah. and he, he's a wonderful writer, and I did an interview with him, and he was, we were talking about identity and, and the brain, and he told me about, you know, uh, examples of people who have had something happen with the brain, and the personality has changed, but they don't know, how could they know? It's them, you know, it's, 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 yeah. There's no, no place you could see yourself from, except when you've written a book, then you can see it, you know, that there it is, something has happened. Would you like to read a piece now, a bit of it, um, just to give yeah. a flavor of, uh, you're going to read, it's in three sections and you're going to read from the first. Yeah, yeah. so this is, this is a book about the consequences of the five first books. And one of the first and most immediate consequences was I had to give the manuscript of the first book to the people I wrote about. And the one person I really, 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 you know, uh, was nervous for and, and, and was very unpleasant was my brother. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll read a piece about how he reacted when he had read the first book. Home again. I was checking my email about twice every hour. It was Sunday, so my inbox stayed empty all day. Yngve was at mum's in Jølste, which I was glad about. It would give him a, the chance to talk to her about it, which might soften his reactions, so I thought. We put the children to bed and sat for a bit on the balcony. 
And I checked my email one last time before going to bed. Nothing. The next morning, his reply was in my inbox. Your fucking struggle, said the subject line. <laughs> I stood up without reading it and went out, out to the balcony, sat there smoking and looking out over the city, cold and despairing. But I had to read it. His words were there, whether I read them or not. I could put it off until evening, but that would only prolong my suffering and the result would still be the same. So I stubbed my cigarette out and got to my feet, went inside into the living room, walked past the kitchen where Jan was sitting in his chair with a spoon in his hand while Linda was reading the newspaper, into the bedroom, sat down on the chair, moved the cursor to the text line, two clicks, and there it was. Just wanted to put the shits up you, <laughs> but the last few days have been rather intense. Seeing my life pass backwards and forwards in front of my eyes on account of your book and me going through old papers and letters here, yours and mine. I don't quite know whether to go into the book or our lives and the relationship we have to each other. The latter definitely needs to be treated differently than it has been until now, or maybe not. As far as the book goes, there are passages that are extremely unpleasant for me to see down on paper, even if I can see why you included them. The part with you, me, Inga and Hans really made everything go black for me. Obviously, I've seen you feel ashamed of me in certain situations and still do see that. It's hard because it touches on aspects of myself that I'm painfully aware of. The way I can sometimes not be there inside myself. The way I can slag things off that I haven't thought of myself. Preferring the role of someone who reads Adorno rather than actually reading Adorno. Mediocrity combined with poor self-awareness and big ambitions doesn't come out very well. But reading it again, it doesn't seem as bad. It's about you, not me. Which I suppose doesn't leave much room for the times I have been ashamed about you. <laughs> we rarely look each other in the eye. Is it as bad as it's made out to be here? Do we look at each other any less than other people? I'll read the rest over the next few days. Maybe you can give me a ring. Ingve. I went out into the hall and found him. There was a slight feeling of uncertainty between us. He told me again about how he had felt reading what I have written, but he wasn't angry. It was more like he was accepting some personal criticism, and that created a build-up of pressure in the situation that I found almost excruciating, because he had no reason to. Not looking each other in the eye, the fact that we never shook each other's hand, or physically touched at all, were things we were unable to talk about. It was out of the question. But when, a few weeks after this phone conversation, he came to see us in Malmö with his two children, Ulva and Torje. He looked me straight in the eye and put out his hand as soon as I opened the door. No irony, no subtleties. He wanted to make amends. 
My eyes grew moist and I had to look down. Thank you. <laughs> However, <laughs> he was not the only person who was, who was um, described, and he was one of the more emollient, the, the more um, receptive people. Uh, the big storm involves another of your relatives, your uncle. Yeah, that was not only my uncle, but that was my uncle repre representative for, for my, my, my father's family. So it was my whole father's family, it was everyone on that side. And he didn't react to the way I portrayed him or anyone else in the family that was alive. He reacted and they reacted upon the way I described my father, he was dead, and my grandmother, who also was dead then. But that's not... I should have, you know, I should have, I should have known that the reaction would be so strong, because it is, you know, we are a family and... And Norway is a small country, and, and that city is a very small city. And my family is very much about keeping the facade looking <laughs> good, you know, outside. It's all, and, and never talk about yourself, never talk about problems. So this, getting this thing, this family secret out there in the open, was impossible for them to kind of deal with, I think. So they wanted to stop it, that was their reaction. So you say you should have known. Yeah. But you, are you suggesting that you maybe would have thought twice about writing what you wrote if you had known? I would have, if I knew. I think and my father I would always have written about in that way. But I think maybe uh, some relating to my grandmother, maybe I didn't have to do, you know, but, I, but I, it wasn't that I, I just opened this room up and described everything that was in the room. And I never thought, you know, is this necessary, is that necessary? I wanted to, to write truthfully about it. So for me and for the book, it was good that I, I wrote it in, in privacy, in a room on my own. Nobody read it. And I was free and I didn't think of the consequences of the reaction. That was good for the book, I think. And then I opened the door and I gave you know, the manuscript to people. And then I, then I realize, you know, how it looked for them. And, and, and I was innocent. I thought, you know, but it is the truth. My father was like that. And, and, but no, he wasn't like that. So that was, but it is incredibly difficult situation. It's almost impossible to, the only solution to everyone be happy would be that I withdraw the book. Mm. And I could have done that, because this was before publication, you know. Mm. You have a, um, there's, there's a, a, a line right at the end when you're talking, the other person whose story you tell is Linda's, your wife's, and um, there's, a, there's a lovely um, line where you say, she says the only thing that she asked you to withdraw was a story about her hitting a donkey. Yeah. And she said, I didn't hit a donkey. And yeah. you said, what, you, you said something like, perhaps that was my expression of the aggression in the air. Yeah. Which I just thought that was so interesting. At the end of this huge book, this huge negotiation with truth, yeah. that you, you actually, that was like you saying, oh, well, maybe she didn't hit a donkey. But that was how I, that was the metaphor I made for the feeling that I felt at that moment. Yeah. But she was, a, she was the person whose reputation could have, who could have gone down as somebody who hits donkeys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, that's, that's also very interesting when you are writing self-biographical. I remember that scene. I remember, you know, the actual hap that it happened, but it didn't happen. 
And how many things in a life is, is like that, you know, that you do remember something, it just didn't happen. Other things, like false memories, like I remember something I heard on the radio and I was about, it's a stupid little thing, but it's, it's uh, when I was 10 years old, I remember something on the radio about the oldest horse in Norway and me saying something about that and, and you know, my parents laughing. And I wrote that and my brother said, no, I said that. I mean, he was saying that, you know, but I do remember me doing it. And that book is full of those kind of things, you know. Mm. And that is, this book isn't about life. It is about remembering a life, you know, very much. And it is, I didn't do research, I didn't check. I, I wrote about what's inside here, you know, about what, how I remember things. Mm. But the big crisis, yeah. one of the big crises, there are yeah. two big crises yeah. in this book, and it's in three sections. Um, and the first crisis involves your tussle over memory with your uncle, yeah. which is resolved at the end because yeah. you find out, you actually get documentary evidence that yeah. you were writer than yeah. he was. You weren't absolutely right because you were a couple of months off, but yeah. it wasn't, he, he was suggesting that your father wasn't with your grandmother for more than a couple of weeks, yeah. and you said two years, yeah. and in the end it turned out to be 15 months. So you were, you, were, you were de facto right. And that seems to be an important psychological moment for you when you realized that you were right. Yeah, because that was um, knowing this, that memory is, you can't trust memory 100%. Knowing that and having the core in this book is the house where my father died. That's, you know, where I'm going in the first book, into that house. That's where the story opens up. That, that's, that's what this book is about. And he died a very dramatically death. It was full of bottles there, it was blood there, it was uh, excrements there, it was things teared apart. It was, it was kind of hellish. And then I write that in the first book and, and my uncle and his family says, no, it wasn't like that. Your father stayed there only for two weeks and he had a heart attack in this chair and there wasn't bottles everywhere. There were some bottles, but you know, he was drinking, but it was nothing like you were describing. And he's an authority for me. He's like, my, my, when my father died, he was the father, you know, with authority. And he's saying, it wasn't like that. And I know that memory is uh, transformable, shaking, and maybe I, did I maybe exaggerate? Did I make this, I mean, not in my writing, but earlier to my friends, to make a dramatic story, you know, to make my father, to make myself interesting, all those kind of things. And then I had this book and it was public, and what if this core was not true. What if it was, you know, I mean, not completely a lie, but, you know, I added a lot of things and, and it wasn't absolutely truthful. And I know that my publishing house, after these letters and, and started, they didn't start to doubt me, but there was something in the air, that, you know, maybe. And then I got this letter and that's why it, that was so important. And that's also interesting because this is about life and literature. And there was a person reading book one out in the world and realizing but I was in that house. I've seen that house from the inside. She was with the ambulance and it was her first job so she remembered everything and she wrote me a letter describing what she saw and, and what had happened and I, I got new information about my father and the death because of that letter. But uh, then I could say to my uncle, you know, it's, it's documented, it was like that. 
you are the one who are lying or are changing the truth. Uh, but I do understand why they did it, and, and I wish I wasn't up in that situation. But that's what the book is about, also. You know, the the consequences of writing about a life. You know. Have you are you re reconciled with your uncle now and your father's family? No, I got a lot of letters. My mother's part of family also got a lot of letters, uh, very intense and very full of rage. And then that book came out and it stopped. No, nothing. So uh, I got some connection with others in my father's family who have written to me. And so there is a kind of a opening up mm. situation. But it is a blow to, <laughs> to the family. And I think having a writer is kind of a, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not what a family wants to have a, a writer in its midst, I think. But there are writers and writers, aren't there? There are some writers who don't actually write about their family. I doubt that. <laughs> I, think, I think you would could see that in, in no matter how fictionalized things is, you could see and you can recognize, and you would try to, to see things, you know. How, however, strange. Yeah, I think so. Even if, even if it's set in the Middle Ages, or yeah, I, I think so. I think that's the, that's the thing with with my struggle with so many things. I couldn't say because of this, because I had this rule that I have to see the one I was writing in. I must be able to see them in the eyes afterwards. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things I couldn't, you know, places I couldn't go. Now I know I can go there in fiction. I could change a little bit, change the names, and then I could. Uh, come up with another form of truth, you know, because that's interesting that you can't be 100% truthful in a book. It is somehow interesting because you have to negotiate with the world, with the people, also with the reader, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, I think that's and very interesting. part of that negotiation is not to be boring, isn't it? Because life is quite mundane. Yeah, <laughs> I, never, I never thought that I shouldn't be boring. I thought the opposite. I thought, and now I'll just do what I want, and I can be as boring as I want to be. I can write as much detail as I want, because this isn't going to be a book that people will read. It's just for me and, and some, some friends. When you, when you wrote that first one. But by yeah, the time the you were one. writing the later ones, you knew, because it, 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 it was immediately successful, pretty much, wasn't it? Yeah, so from book three, book four, book five, I know the reactions. And I think you could see that in the books that I have, I'm not as, I'm more careful. Less careful in one, two, and more careful in three, four. And I knew that so book six was very important for me that I was trying to get, to push it uh, towards more truth, towards more the unpleasant part of, of my life in book six to kind of take the project uh, back. And that was much harder than writing the first book because then I didn't know, no one knew. So I did it innocently, I did it on purpose, you know. That was, um, that was harder somehow. I came into your work through book four and then I obviously went back and became a completist, but I came in in the middle. And I was quite passionately attached to book four, although it was sort of a very weird place to be in the sort of I sort of I remember describing it to a friend as being in, in Carlo Ove's underpants for, for yeah. two weeks or however, however long it took. But if anybody who knows it, it's sort of full of hormones that book, isn't it? Yeah. And so I was I was rather disappointed to see you describe that in this book as um, you didn't feel it rang true. That was the book that you didn't feel you don't now feel was honest. You say. 
Yeah, and I think the emotions and the feelings and the, the presence in the book of being 17 or 18, that's accurate and that's truthful. But the actual events and actual personal characters, I felt like I had, you know, I had lawyers reading that book. I do remember it. And do remember, instead of having an editor reading it with comments, I had lawyers with comments and saying, you know, this person, she's too close to alcoholism. You have to remove, you know, this. And, and I had to do all this kind of cover-up. Like the wife of your, your, your father's second wife? So no, it could be that, anyone yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, that yeah, book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I never actually talked about this. Uh, you're the first one ever pointed that out, that it is... That I, that I do take up that in, in, in the last book, the problem of writing you know, truthfully. And I think what I wanted in, in book four was I want to write about how it is to be 17, how it is to be me, how yeah, the presence in the world from that. And, but then I, I had to let go of you know, details around. Couldn't be her, has to be you know, a bit slightly different or a different name just to because of what happened with book one and book two, to make it legal, actually. Yeah, and you called it a comedy of immaturity, yeah. which it, it is the funniest, in a way, of, yeah. of the books, isn't it? Because it's so... It could also be the most tragic and, and horrible, or the most funny. <laughs> well, it depends on, you know, your entrance into it. But it is also a dangerous book. I mean, that's the most dangerous in some ways, isn't it? In that you describe your feelings as an 18-year-old teacher for a 13-year-old and you'd already dealt with that in a previous novel yeah. where you'd acted out the scenario of what could have happened in your fiction. Yeah. You wrote that book yeah. after you were aware of the danger of your project. Yeah, So I'm true. really intrigued by that because that seems yeah. a very out there and brave thing to do. Yeah, and it's... it's um, I, I was thinking about this book as a kind of a backstage book and all of my struggles are backstage books and I have been... I have written two novels before that, and the first novel is uh, fictionous. It's about a 26-year-old teacher going up north of Norway, having a relationship with his 13-year-old uh, student and fleeing from there. And when that book came out, I thought this would be you know, very controversial because it is kind of, it is completely seen from his side. Like she's just, yeah, she, she hasn't no, she has no own voice. She's completely filtered through his imagination, you know. And I thought this would be very controversial, but it wasn't. It was like the book was praised and, and wasn't even mentioned. And then I thought I should have this book and try to show what the real life experience behind the book was. And also in my second book, which is about angels, but also is about my father's and mother's family and, and grandparents and so on and so on. And so I wanted to see where everything in fiction comes from in real life. That was kind of the motivation. And the hardest part was this book, because I was you know, writing about myself being 18 up as a teacher in, in northern Norway. And you, you, I mean, you got a lot of difficult press over that book, didn't you? I mean, which you talk about a bit in this, uh, of people being literalist and people making all sorts of accusations. Not, not just about that, but about everything. Tracing, tracking down all the people that you mentioned. Yeah. And, and blowing it all up, yeah. sensationalizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, that was from the very beginning. I mean, every, every single person I, I knew was, journalists called them. There were journalists waiting outside, you know, outside the apartments for them to come out, you know. It was my, 
ex-wife's mother's uh, ex-husband. He was like 80 and living in, in the forest. They called him, you know. And all I wanted to do was people saying something terrible and negative about me, and then they would print it, you know. But that, that, was, the, that was the energy around this, this project. So what I did, I told all my friends, don't talk to me about it, don't mention it, because I was writing, so I kind of made myself try to protect myself and try to write more in this kind of crazy oh yeah, atmosphere. Of, it has never happened really in, in Norway before, I think. It's, it was unheard of, really. And because, partly because there isn't a tradition of autofiction, did no, you say, yeah, in no, the same yeah, way? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they kind of realized we can call the people in this novel, so they did. So. Last year, The Guardian tracked all the deaths of young people due to knife crime and explored the themes that emerged in an award-winning series called Beyond the Blade. Why are they carrying a knife in an area where they know people but they feel that they have to acquit themselves from other people? We saw many people suffering, but we also saw many fighting back. We've got to start looking at how we talk and how we generalise and how we categorise just ordinary people that are poorer than other people or people who don't have as much as other people. For this new series, journalists from The Guardian travel to Bristol, Birmingham and Croydon in South London to listen to some of those people. Society tends to look down at young people once they've made a wrong choice and what we're saying by that is that we're writing them off. And rather than report on their conversations, we let them speak for themselves. When I come out of jail, I'd never been praised before I'd turned my life around. And when I come out and got praised for the work that I was doing, I thrived. That gap needs to be built up a, a bit sooner, you know? As opposed to... Yeah, just waiting to hear from, hear from me because I'm waiting to hear from the next generation as well. So we're all waiting and there's no like, action happening, happening, happening. If families are fractured, that has an impact on a young person. If a father and a mother get divorced, that has an impact on our young people. And I think the only way they know how to make people sit up and say, listen, there's a real problem going on here is by violence. To listen to all three episodes, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcast or subscribe by searching Beyond the Blade on your favourite podcast app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, the first section, it's, it has the big central set piece, is your relationship with Geir. How do you pronounce it? Geir, yeah. Geir, mm. um, who's, a, who's your friend and confidant. And there's a sort of very prolonged scene when Geir comes um, to see you and... Linda's away for a bit and you're struggling to deal with all this the, this fallout from all this terrible publicity. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that came because it's, it's so dramatic. In a way it's just two men pushing pushchairs around the park. <laughs> but it's, it's so dramatic the way you, you relate to him. I was very interested in the idea, the idea of um, the control in your relationship and the way that you you perceive, you, you talk about your parenting and you look at his parenting, for example, and you see that he's less, he's less hands-on than you are. And one of the things that happens is you say, you couldn't say it to him. And yet there you are writing it. Yeah. And he's your friend. Yeah. And it's another layer to it because it's, uh, I read every single word I wrote on my struggle to him on the phone every day. So he... Of all the six volumes? Yeah, yeah. It would, this book wouldn't have, wouldn't have been if it wasn't for, for him and my editor also. My editor read it and he listened to it. And the thing was, he, he was, um, we, we do that, he's a writer too, so we do that to each other, you know, just listen to this and, and read up and discuss it. And, and it was kind of, it was, it was not very much of it, but a little, little bit. And then I started this project and, and it kind of, you know, uh, it, it, it grew. And then I, said to him, you know, and I have been writing about you now, and are you prepared to listen? As he said, um, yeah, yeah, just read. And I read, and he didn't say much, and hung up, and, and, <laughs> and we didn't talk. I mean, then we talked like every day, and he, he was gone for three days. And then he called me and said, okay, it's all right, go on, you can write whatever you want. But he had to think about what this meant and what it was and, and how he would react to it, you know, because he was, um, he realized, I think he was the one who realized the impact this book would have. I didn't, but he did. And, and that's, uh, th that's kind of typical for many people in the book. At first they are almost like frozen in, in some <laughs> position and, and very, very upset and uh, angry and then, okay, they understand it. But that is, it is almost, you can almost write anything about people, even positive things, and it is unpleasant. And if you see them in a life, the unpleasantness is, is often that it is reduced. My mother said, said that, you know, when she read it, that it's so terrible to be reduced to nothing. I mean, just this little thing, is this me, you know? Because everyone has this rich inner life and, and, and are the world to themselves, and then you see yourself in another person's life just as little. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend from, you know, earlier on, and he was, he was angry with me because he, he was mentioned too little. And I think that's, yeah, but that's, that's, that's because of that, you know. A couple of times you assure people that they're, they're going to have a bigger role in the subsequent book, don't yeah. you? Yeah, but Gerd then, he was very important also because he, he we, we discussed what I was writing, you know. So, so the, the, this book has a, third, uh, a second part about, you know, Nazism and Hitler, and, and it's much more academic in a way, and it's many things, but... 
but he just poured things at He's very intellectual and, and he knows like everything and, and he just throw books at me, throw titles at me and, and, and it was so that I had to write in this book about what it is to plagiarism. I had a, I had a passage about plagiarism. I had a passage about, you know, what is... Because you were thinking that in a way, were you plagiarizing him? Would yeah, I was that? using lots of stuff from his world, you know, and he was he was happily giving it to me. Uh, but and still. he's an academic who who's written a book about Iraq. Basically, yeah, he wrote first. Uh, it's interesting in itself because I met him first when I was uh, 19 in Bergen, just a few weeks, and it was like you know finally a friend. And then he moved to Sweden, and I didn't hear from him many, many years, and then I got a book in, in the, the mail uh, about boxing. So he had been undercover in a boxing club for three years, uh, didn't say, say to anyone what, what he was doing, and just boxing and being beaten for three years, and then he wrote a book about boxing. It is brilliant. And then uh, I divorced and moved to Stockholm and, and asked if you know, I could stay on his coach, and I did, and we become friends. And then he wrote a book about Iraq. Mm. Uh, and then I had to do something to him, so I published. I set up with some friends and you set up a publishing house to publish to his that book. book. Yeah, mm -hmm. because it's a monster. It's like 1,300 pages. It's absolutely brilliant, but no publishing house wanted to touch it, so we <laughs> we did it. But he's in a proper publishing house now. So I, I think partly what I'm getting at is that part of that is in the past that you're looking back on how your relationship was before this whole project started, yeah. but it's also ongoing because he also is playing a part in this. Yeah, yeah. So the tricks you're playing with chronology all the time must impact on the people who feel, maybe feel their part is in the past, but then he, it goes on happening. Yeah. And so you're sort of playing somersaults with time. Yeah, that's the freedom you, you have in a novel. Uh, it makes it very different from presenting your life. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's something I, I didn't really plan, but I'm, I started to do that in book two where there is no narration almost. It's like walking a little bit, sitting down, remembering something, and then that starts to take over, and then you're there, and then from there you can go there, you know. It's, it's, um, to me, that was like an experiment on, on how, yeah, how far you can go in letting go of the, of the narration and, and still have a book, but that opens up, you know, and enormously possibilities. And, if you see, for instance, Marcel Proust, he's, he's opening those kind of rooms. There's one room here, one room there, and he connects them with a metaphor, and then he's there, and then he's there, and it's an enormous freedom in that. You can move freely between you know, rooms, and past, and present. And, but I never thought, okay, if I put this against that, it would be good. It was just, oh, I remember that, and I go there, and I remember that, and I go there, you know? Mm. But it is like, isn't it like that it is to be? I mean, you have these rooms in your head. You go, you remember something, and you go there, and you remember something, you go there. Yeah, but you also have the narrative arc, which is a, a pretty dangerous narrative arc in this book, because the question that is posed right at the beginning is, what will Linda think when she sees what you've written about Linda? And we know from previous books that Linda's fragile. And then at the end, you're going into real time, and you don't, you know, and Linda has a crisis. And what we don't know is how much that crisis is brought on by the book. Her mother certainly thinks it's brought on. That's contributed to it. Yeah, you can't know that. But, but the thing was, um, I don't think what's mentioned in the book, was written in the book, did contribute to anything in those terms. Because that was, that was 
we, you know, we talked about it, she read it, and that was just, it was fine, she's a writer herself. But I think the reactions to it, the pressure on us uh, then as a family was, yeah, maybe made it happen, I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to, it's impossible to say, but this book is about the consequences, and then that was one of the consequences. So what we haven't talked at all about is this big central section, which um, is largely about Hitler. And the, you know, one of the questions uh, with the whole project has been the significance of, this, of the title, yeah. My Struggle. And then you have 400-page digression, or not a digression, interpolation, which quite biographical about Hitler, which says something about the nature of the project, that I want to know exactly what you're doing, because I think I have a theory about it, but I'm, I just would be interested in what you're doing with it. Why I was doing it? What you were doing with that, yes. Why did you put in 400-page digression on Hitler in the middle of this book? I have... Uh, the only explanation I have is the chronology of th that book, is, is how it was written. So I start out with a reflection of names, because I couldn't use my father's name because of my re relatives. So I had to write about my father, his real person, without using his name. So that his name doesn't exist in the book. Uh, that starts to reflect what a name is, what it means. Um, I'm reading then a wonderful essay by, by Ingeborg Bachmann about names. And there she has an essay about Paul Celan. I start to read Paul Celan. It's an incredibly powerful poem, probably one of the most powerful poems ever written. It's, it's very hard to get a grasp on what's going on in it, but just, just know this is, there is something going on, it's very important. And I try to read that in the book. And it is, it is, it is the end of something, and it's the beginning of something. And, it, and Paul Celan was, was from Romania, and he was Jewish, and his parents was killed by the Nazis, and this is written in German. And it's like language itself has almost collapsed. It's almost impossible to, to, to name something in it. That fascinated me enormously because I think my theory is that what's going on in this poem is that the we, the connection between people, that is automatically in a language, you know, it's from me to you, that's the we, has been destroyed. This, this just ruins left of that. And how come? Yeah, but this was written in you know, the beginning of the 50s after Holocaust. And I realized. This process started with Mein Kampf, Hitler's Mein Kampf. I have to read that book. My book is also called Mein Kampf, and I do read it. And the interesting thing is that as I realize, okay, Hitler is writing about his father, his mother, a little bit about his youth. He's not lying, but he's not, he's, he's just telling, you no, know, there is so much underneath there, you, you can sense it, and I wanted to find out what that was. And I started to read about him, I started to write about him, realizing, you know, he was 16 years old, he was, actually very much like me, you know. He was into, he, into, he wanted to love music, he was very shy, he didn't, he was in love with a woman, a girl, she, he didn't, you know, dare to talk to, and he was very much a typical shy teenager. And then the interesting thing become, okay, how, what happened? And then there's a whole generation, generational question is very important in that book from, Vienna and Germany, 1900, 1910, First World War and the Second World War. And then it's about that. And then writing about Nazism and then about Holocaust, realizing 
this book is about, it's the opposite of totalitarianism, it's the opposite of everything that was going on. Literature is the opposite of that. And if you, if you use, you know, literature and, and, and write about Hitler, he becomes something completely different, becomes full of failure, full of small things. He's just a little, you know, uh, self-righteous man. But you can also see how that could raise what, what happened, you know, in, in, in terms of we, in terms of the social whole, social scene, the whole generation. And that was the only place outside in this book that was outside us and outside me and outside, you know, it's kind of a a mirror or, or something you could define everything against somehow. I don't know if it's relevant, but I did it in like a flow and I think it is, yeah, it, it is kept together. It's just that try to find out why, how can that happen? And then now you see 10 years later, it's something is, has happened in, in our world and something is, you know, moving and, and what is that? And, you know, then it is just, yeah, I think it's, um, um, it might be the least relevant thing I've written, but for me it's the most important thing I've written, mm. I think. But there's something about um, him being a loner, and there's a, quite a shocking moment when you, you say um, you've always been a loner. The first time you ever felt part of a crowd was when the massacre happened on the island in, yeah, yeah. in Norway. Yeah. And I just, I, I sort of, <gasps> yeah, I found yeah. that really shocking because... And you had, yeah, but that was, that was, uh, that was, that was, that's very much part of the, of the definition of the feeling of we. So it's, a, it's, but you, you said we, the sense of we broke down, but in a way there was a sense of we, but it was a sense of, a fascistic sense of we. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that it's, excluded those who weren't part Yeah, of yeah, it. but that's very strong feeling of belonging. When that happened, Norway is a small country. And I have always been critical to Norway, as you are, you know, and, and I moved to Sweden. <laughs> Norway is just a little country, and, and, and then that happened, uh, the shooting on that island. And I watched it, and I, you know, I was crying, and, I, it, and it was, it, it was, and I wanted to, to go home. I had a feeling of go home because it happened with us, you know, and that, that was so strong, those feelings. And I know many other people said the same thing, and then, what kind of pull is that? What kind of we is that? What, what is going on? And then I wrote about it. And then, of course, a newspaper said that I compared the gatherings with roses and, and that was in awe with Nazism. But there has to be something good in Nazism. There has to be some feeling of, you know, something must, must be good in that. If not, people would never have, you know, gone into it like they did. And that's the feeling of belonging. And, you know, all those kind of emotions are possible to um, manipulate, you know, and that's what Hitler is doing. It's, it's, it's playing with emotions, manipulating emotions, and he's writing in his book about what he's doing, and he's just saying, I can do that. It's just a matter of lying, tell the lies many no enough times, and, and Tell a lie, tell a big lie. Yeah, yeah. and it yeah. would be truth, and he's very good on, on those kind of things, and you see, yes, it worked, you know, and we have to find ourselves against that. We have to make the, our we and we have to make our nation different than and, you know, they did and we have to be careful with emotions, we have to be careful with that, that kind of, of thinking in, in, in politics and we have been, you know, so it's just, yeah, I just find it very, I always use myself when I'm writing, so that feeling of belonging, that feeling of we, that feeling of 
there's something almost majestic sometimes in that. It could be in a football crowd or whatever, but it is. And it's, that was my entrance to Nazism, you know. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that or wrong with that, but it's just the same playing with the same kind of feelings. I wondered whether there was something else going on as well, which is a negotiation with the idea of banality. Of sort of, you, you talk a little bit about the art, the Nazi art being bad art. His art, he lied, he was a liar. He, he didn't get into the academy, he yeah. said he had. He was a bad artist. And there's something going on about that and your negotiation with the idea of banality. I think well, Hitler is interesting because he, he obviously had some talent. I mean, he could obviously paint, but he was rejected. I think he was rejected two or three times. And he was living with a friend and he couldn't admit that he was, that he was so he lied and he pretended to go to the art school every day. That takes something to do just that. But I think, why did he fail? I think the main character trait with him was that he couldn't be corrected. He didn't accept corrections. He was just from him and out, from him and out. There was nothing kind of coming in. So there was no, yeah, there was no negotiation between him and the world, you know. He, he, he made an opera, he couldn't write notes, so he invented a, a, a note system with colors, you know. And his friend was, was a musician, and he said, Hitler just ordered him to play, it was terrible, but it, because he didn't take anything in, he didn't want to learn, it was just one way, one dimension, no corrections. And throughout his life, that's the pattern, there's no corrections. And you can't make art that means something to other people if the other people doesn't exist. To him, it was him, and then it was they, you know? There was no you, there was no one single person. And his book, is, there's no, you don't feel that. You feel a mass of people and him, you know? And, and what is literature? It's you and me, and I, you know, that's, that's what it is. And looking. Yeah, and see, yeah, exactly. And, and seeing, yeah, exactly. And when yeah. you read, you take in, you, and you, you, be, you are corrected. I mean, I, I don't like to be corrected, but, <laughs> but I still in writing, that's what it is. You know, that's what it is. It's to get out of yourself somehow. And you, you also, apart from the bit about Nazism and Hitler, you have quite a lot of talk about different forms of art. And yeah. one of the interesting. Um, negotiations is with Cezanne and um, with the idea of painting nothingness, making space yeah. the subject. Yeah. And, and that seems really interesting in, to me in terms of your, what you're doing in the book, because part of what you're doing is you're making a novel out of a trip with your children to the park to see a clown. Yeah. And there's that, that space of time, which happens again and again, or, or you putting coffee into, a, into your vacuum flask and taking it out to the veranda, which is, you could say is, in terms of active narrative, it's empty space, but what you're doing is populating it. Yeah, I haven't thought of that, but it's, um, when you have a, when you, if, you, if you paint, the space is there beforehand, you know? There is the background, it's the middle ground, and it's the foreground and it is left, right, up, and, and then you, you paint. But the feeling with the Havid Cezanne is, uh, and this is you know, fairly banal, but, but that, that's not the case. He paints the things, and the space co comes out of the relation between the things. That's why it's so many angles and strange things going on, because it's the things that kind of creates it, and that makes a, a new way of looking at something very, very familiar. And that's what art is about. I mean, if I don't, 
like a novel, it's very often because I felt that it existed before. It's just, you know, the space and the, and the room was there and, and it's just filled, filled. And if it's a great writer, then that doesn't matter at all. But if you read, you know, for instance, if you read Dostoevsky, it's, it's a good example because mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's, it's just, you see, he's just, he's completely free. There's no rules. If you want to go there, he goes there or there, he goes there. And, and that creates some a freshness, a newness, um, a, different, a different world, basically, in the same world. Mm. So that's, that's, yeah, that's what it is about. And, and you, you, you talk quite a lot about Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky's sense of holiness. Yeah. Of goodness. Yeah. And of getting, I mean, there's a lovely passage about where you, you get quite Baroque for you. It's a Baroque piece of writing. I've, got, I've actually taken it down here. The spinning, flashing tombola of the social world on the fair ground of meaninglessness in the black night of emptiness. And what he defends himself with time and again is the holy and the simplicity of the holy. And I, I, I wrote that down because that's so, so unlike you. That. <laughs> yeah, I can't even remember having written it. So <laughs> Maybe I had a plagiarism. <laughs> so I'm, just, I'm really interested in that, that's, um, what this theoretical centre of the book does for you, because it takes you out of the day-to-day, -day, which has been so much of what, what your defence is, what your holiness is, or your, your simpleness is. What do you mean? Well, like that, that sentence. You know, that's quite what a fancy it does sentence. In, in the writing, you mean? In your writing, yes. The way you write and the things you write about yeah. are very carefully simple. Yeah. Artfully carefully simple. I'm not accusing you of not, not being no, sophisticated. No. It's. I'm just writing and waiting for something to happen, basically, and describing what's, what's there. I often start with describing the garden and then just wait to see what happens. And then something, I mean, I remember, I think that's in that book, there is a, there's a matchstick light, and from that there is an association, and then we are in a completely different world. And, and well, that's, that's those moments I'm waiting for, and I could you know, wait patiently for 100 pages, and then there is something. And the thing is, it isn't planned, it isn't me doing it, it's just something that comes of the, of the writing. And it also represents something, because of course, you can have philosophical or existential thoughts while you're in the supermarket, and I think maybe that's where you have them. Mm. Not, you know, in, in university, it's kind of, those thinking is kind of uh, secluded from the world. It's a separate world, but it isn't like that in the real world, you know. Everything is mixed and, and, and live on the same, same level, basically. I would just wonder if you would you just read that passage that I pointed out that I'm, yeah. that I'm quite keen on, which just talks about the difference between fiction and non-fiction. Yeah. I had thought about none of this while I had been writing. Neither the manufacture of reality, representation, nor my father's integrity. Everything took place intuitively. I began with a blank page and a will to write and ended up with the novel as it was. In that, there lies a belief in the intuitive that is as good as blind. And from that basis, a poetics might be derived and an ontology too, I suppose, since for me, the novel provides a means of thinking radically different from that of the essay, the article or the thesis. 
because reflection in a novel is not hierarchically superior as a pathway to understanding, but coordinates with all the other elements in it. The room in which it is conceived is as important as the thought itself. The snow falling through the darkness outside, the headlights of the cars gliding past on the other side of the river. This was perhaps the most important thing I learned at university, that practically anything at all can be said about a novel or a poem, and what is said may be as likely as it is plausible but never exhaustive, perhaps not even important, since the novel and the poem are always entities in their own right, singular and existing as they are. And the fact that what the novel or the poem says cannot be said in any other way makes them essentially mysterious. The world is mysterious in exactly the same way, and yet we tend to forget this all the time always giving precedence to reflection whenever we look at it. What does it mean to walk? Is it putting one foot in front of the other? Yes, it is. But describing the motor function, the putting of one foot in front of the other, says nothing about what it feels like to walk, or the difference between walking uphill and down, walking along a stone jetty or up a flight of stairs, across a lawn or on the mossy earth of the forest, barefoot or in boots, and even less about the feeling of watching others walk, the pedestrians bustling across the square on a Saturday morning, the lone man striding through snow-covered fields, or a person you've known for a very long time, the way their entire character seems to be contained in the way they walk when they come towards you. Thank you. That was Karl Ove Knauskar speaking with Claire Armitstead at one of our Guardian Live events. You can find more about them at theguardian.com slash membership. Knausgaard's Struggle is published in an English version from Don Bartlett and Martin Aitken by Harvel Secker in the UK and by Archipelago and FSG in the US. Next week we're getting a little acquisitive as we examine who really owns a story. Sarah Waters joins us to discuss how Lenny Abrahamson put her novel The Little Stranger onto the big screen, while John Boyne imagines a novelist whose work lives and dies by stealing other people's ideas in his latest book, A Ladder to the Sky. In the meantime, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving us a comment on the podcast page. As always, if you prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast@theguardian.com. But from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.